Welcome to the Foundations Church Podcast, where we exist to make Jesus famous. We hope this message is life-giving, encouraging, and challenges you in your walk with Christ. Tonight we're looking at the fallout of, of that uh, um, that sin, that spiral down of sin. We're looking at um, a confrontation between um, David and, and God, in essence, through, through the prophet Nathan. We're looking at the consequences, and then we're going to look at this confession that David has. Um, but if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting in verse uh, 1. Um, we've also got the notes on the app and on the screen behind me, um, but we are, are going to get right into it. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1, we're going to read through the uh, first Half of verse seven. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he, be, he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and, and it grew up with him and his children. It, it used to eat of his morsel and drink of his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man and said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. I said, I'm not going to recap everything that we went through last week. Um, but one thing I want us to remember is that if we look at chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, the, the mention of God's name, the mention of the word Lord is very noticeably absent from that whole story with the exception of the very last verse and it's the very last word of the very last verse. And it said this, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Um, you see that, that in chapter 11, as David is, is committing these sins and um, um, committing these acts that, that nowhere is he consulting God, nowhere is he worshiping God, um, nowhere is he concerned about what he's doing against a holy God in any of this. Uh, you see David sending messengers to go get Joab and, and to get Uriah off the battlefield. You see David send a message to Joab um, to, uh, to have Uriah placed on the front lines. But David is sending these people to do his bidding. He's sending messengers to go find out who Bathsheba is. He's, he's sending people to go get, he's sending people all around and starting out in verse 12, the end of verse, or chapter 11 says, the thing that David did displeased the Lord. And starting out verse 12, it says, and the Lord sent Nathan to David, that David had been sending people, hadn't been concerned with what the Lord did, but here and starting, it's like, and the Lord, the Lord didn't miss what was going on. Yeah. Um, that, that we see that nothing has escaped the Lord's sight. And so God is sending David, or sending uh, his, his messenger Nathan to David, um, and Nathan is a prophet. And now when we, we talk about prophets, what is, uh, in regards to Old Testament, what's, what's something that comes to mind? If I say, hey, what is a prophet? What, is, what's, what kind of definition do we think of? They hear God. They hear God. Yeah, not only do they hear God, but they, are, they would be considered God's spokesman. Like this is, um, the, the, the word prophet literally means spokesman. So they are, they're God's mouthpiece to the people. Um, and so what they often did was they would 
um, they would hear God, they would speak to God on behalf, or they speak to the people on behalf of God, and uh, they would often rebuke kings and nations. Uh, they would predict future events. You know, if you don't do uh, A, B, and C, God's going to do X, Y, Z, right? That if you don't turn, God's going to do this. Or they would say, hey, this is coming because you have not repented. Um, and the prophets weren't, they weren't popular. Um, they weren't necessarily really well-liked people. Why? Because they're bringing correction to, to nations. They're bringing correction to the kings. They're calling people out for their sin, and they're speaking on behalf of God. You see Stephen as he's on, on trials. He's about to be executed in Acts chapter 7. That He, he references this. He says uh, in, in Acts chapter 7, verse 51 through 53, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. So Stephen is saying, hey, you guys killed these prophets. Like you persecuted them because they were calling out your sin. And so this is where the false prophet would kind of find their niche, um, where you have this prophet declaring you know, sin and, and judgment upon the nation, the false prophet would step in and say, hey, 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 things aren't that bad, right? Things, they're going okay. Don't listen to Ezekiel. Don't listen to Jeremiah. Don't listen to Isaiah. And they would do this. They would proclaim these lies. They would build up wealth. They'd build up um, popularity for themselves because it's easier and it's more enjoyable to hear that things are going great than it is you need to change your ways. Am I right? Like, none of us really enjoy saying, hey, this area, you're really falling, you're really falling short, and you need to change. But saying, hey, you're doing really good in this area, it's like, yeah, I like those people around me. I like those people around me. Um, and, and we see this in Jeremiah chapter 14, um, verses 13 through 14. Then I said, ah, Lord God, behold the prophets and say to them, or behold the, pro- behold, the prophets say to them, this is Jeremiah speaking to the Lord, saying, hey, these prophets are saying to the people, you shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. And the Lord said to me, said to Jeremiah, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination in the deceit of their own minds. So this, you get a crystal clear picture of what these false prophets are doing. God's like, I didn't speak to them. I didn't tell them to do that. And this is why the false prophets were one of the biggest threats to the nation of Israel is because they would make Israel feel comfortable where they were. They're like, we're good. We're, we're, we're where we need to be. Um, you know, they deceived them into thinking that, that nothing needed to change. Why? Because it's easier to say everything's good and just coast than to realize there is a change that needs to happen. Um, and I've talked about it before. I think it might have been last year where we talk about people, there's, there's a difference between having the gift of prophecy and being a prophet, where people, if people nowadays say, hey, I'm a prophet, um, my radar go up because like, bro, you got to be batting a thousand. Because if you're not batting a thousand, then you're a false prophet because God is not wrong. And if you're saying, thus saith the Lord, and God didn't say it, then you're a false prophet. And like, I think it's in Deuteronomy where it lays out these really clear lines about what a prophet is and what a prophet is. And then if a prophet is wrong, then God hasn't spoken to them and you don't listen to them. And so I've had people speak prophecy over my life that have rang true, that have come true. They're not claiming to be a prophet, but they, in that moment, they had the gift of prophecy where God spoke a word to them. They, they said it to me and 
and it came true. I'm like, cool. But there is that difference. Um, and so what happened in the nation of Israel can happen today when it comes to false prophets. A lot of times we, they'd be called uh, false teachers um, today. You know, they, they say everything's great, everything's good. Um, they, they build us up and, and they, they never really, um, they preach, and I use that word loosely, um, these messages that might be more motivational than they are um, scriptural. Um, if I can take the scriptures that they use and just substitute motivational quotes or, or, or phrases from philosophers, and it carry the same weight, then it's not the gospel. Because the gospel is the power of Christ. Like, it is the good news of what Christ did. And so when we hear people saying, hey, things are great. I want to show you how to have purpose and fulfillment in your life. Um, I want to show you how to be happy and, and wealthy and wise. A lot of times they're, they're doing what the false prophets did. It may be well-intentioned, but it's dangerous and detrimental to the church. Um, you know, we don't, like to, we don't like to hear those messages um, that are harsh because they're uncomfortable, but it's necessary. Um, I heard somebody say that soft preaching leads to hard hearts, but hard preaching leads to soft hearts. And, and you, you see this. Have you guys ever heard of the, the first Great Awakening? Anyone? It was this revival that, that swept through the colonies in, in the mid-1700s. And it was sparked by a sermon by the man named Jonathan Edwards where he preached this message called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, where it was a difficult, hard message where people are, are shrieking um, because of what he's saying and exposing their sins. But it sparked this revival, but it was a hard sermon, but it broke their hearts. And this is what a, a true prophet does is they preach and they speak the word of God, whether it's popular or unpopular, um, because it, it softens the heart, it breaks us down to realize what needs to change. And this is what Nathan is doing to David. He's going before the king. He's going before this man that could have him executed if he wanted to. And he goes before uh, David, and he doesn't outright say, hey, you've broken the 10th commandment you coveted. You've broken the 7th commandment. You've committed adultery. You've broken the 6th commandment. You've committed murder. What do you have to say for yourself? I think if he would have done that, David's walls would have continued to go up. But what he does is he, he, he gives this parable. Um, and, and you see Jesus giving parables in the New Testament. And, and the, the Greek word parable means to throw alongside. And so what Jesus does, he has these spiritual realities, spiritual truths, and he throws this analogy alongside to help elaborate and expand upon the spiritual truth that he's talking about. And Nathan does something similar. You've got the physical reality of what David is doing, and he throws alongside this story that parallels and overlaps um, the story of David and Bathsheba. And so here's the, here's the, uh, the parable. Let's look at that again real quick. Nathan says this, um, speaking um, from God, he said, there were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many, or had, had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him, with his children. And it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock to the herd and prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now, if you remember in chapter 11, when David was brought word of the battle that had happened, what was David's response? When, when Joab had sent the messenger to David, hey, this is how the battle went, didn't go so well, we lost some men, 
Uriah died. What, how, would, how did David respond? Yeah, he was like, oh, big deal. People die. It's war, right? I mean, like, he didn't care. He didn't care. But now he's presented this story of this unidentified man, this unidentified wealthy man, taking this one little lamb that this poor man had. And how does David respond in this moment? He's angry. He kill that guy. Kill that guy and make him pay back what he, what he stole from that person. And, and what's happening here is, is the reason I think Nathan is telling it in the parable is to have David condemn himself. Um, because what David is doing, when he says he needs to be killed, he's going above what the, like, the law just required the man just pay, just restore the lamb back to the, to the guy. But David's like, no, he needs to be killed. But because this is a parable, because it is tying into the story of what David had done, you've got, um, you've got this traveler, which, which is David's lustful thoughts not being contained, which David could have satisfied with the wives that he had, but he didn't. Instead, he took the lamb, who, which is who? Bathsheba, from this man, Uriah, and he had this lamb slaughtered, which in this parable is him having Uriah killed. And so David has sentenced, has condemned himself when he said that man needs to be paid back and be executed. Um, Leviticus 20.10 says that if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Is David guilty of adultery? Yeah. Um, Leviticus 24.17, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Was David guilty of having Uriah killed? Yep. Should be put to death. And so David, and, and he's enraged at this story. Where is this man? Justice has got to be served He's got to be held accountable for his crime. He's got to be put to death. And what does Nathan say? You're the man. Not Ric Flair, you're the man, but no, no, no. You're the man that needs to be put to death. You're the man that's guilty in this story. We read in 2 Samuel verse, or chapter 12, starting in verse 7 to 14, in the back half of verse 7. So Nathan says, you're the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you over to your master's, or I gave you to your master's house and your master's wives in your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, <coughs> excuse me, I would add to you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will rise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And David said to Nathan, Oh, yeah, okay, just making sure I didn't go too far. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin and you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. After David's confronted with what he's done, after Nathan has called him out, um, after the, the blinders have been ripped off, uh, after, after David's been enraged by this parable and Nathan awakens him from this like spiritual nap that he's been in for the, for the past year, um, he's, he's first reminded of all that God has done for him. God said, I anointed you, I delivered you, I gave you, and if all that were not enough, I would have given you more. 
I've given you everything you could have ever imagined. And if that were enough, I would have given you more. And he said, but because you despise the word of the Lord, because you rejected it, because you broke his commandments, that, that God has been so gracious to you, your sin's about to have some serious consequences. Um, we see this episode with David and Bathsheba play out. And just quick gut, gut reaction, I'm going to ask you a question. Just by, I'm going to ask you two questions. Um, how many of you guys think that what David did with Bathsheba was just a temporary lapse in judgment? Anyone? Just simply raise your hand. Anyone think it was just like a quick lapse in judgment? How many of you think it might have been something that had been festering that eventually boiled up to the surface? Anyone? Um, so let me, let me back up. Um, before Israel even had a king, um, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, God knew that this was the path they were going to take. Um, he knew that, that they were going to, to say, hey, we need a human ruling us. We don't want to be theocracy. We want a king ruling over us. And so in Deuteronomy 17, God said this. He said, when you come to the land that your Lord, your God is giving you and you possess it and you dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord, your God will choose. And so these are the stipulations now that, that the kings must live up to. One from among your brothers, you shall set, at, set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So the king's got to be from Israel, got to be from the tribe of Israel, right? Um, second, second thing, he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away nor shall he acquire himself for excessive silver or gold. So God's saying, you're not relying on military power. Don't acquire for yourself a bunch of horses to build up an infantry. Um, don't, don't rely on alliances with other nations through the marrying of other people. Um, other Like, hey, I'm going to marry this king's daughter to, to secure a peace. Um, and don't acquire wealth as, as your source of trust. Um, he's saying that, no, 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 you need to rely on me, the I am. That, that this, is, this is who you should rely on. But very early on in David's reign, we see him with at least half a dozen wives. Um, and, and one or two of these for sure are, are wives of other kings. Um, we read in 2 Samuel chapter 3, verses 2 through 5, there's a bunch of names in here that I will do my best to pronounce. Um, but uh, there, I underlined all the wives, so you can see six wives. Um, and the sons born to David at Hebron, his first son was born Amnon of, uh, of, the, of Jezreel, uh, his second son, Chiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. The third, Absalom, the son of his wife, Makah, the daughter of Talmia, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adoniah, the, king, the son of Haggith. The fifth, uh, Seth, yeah, that one, um, of Abitel. Uh, there you go. Say it again, D. Shephatiah, sure. Um, the, king, uh, the sixth, Ethraim uh, uh, of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. Six wives, six sons, the six different wives. Um, pretty sure we just read that he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Um, David liked the ladies. He had a problem. Um, and this was a, a clear violation of how kings were supposed to conduct themselves. And I, I really believe that this episode with Bathsheba didn't come out of nowhere, but it came out of this unchecked sin growing and growing and growing and eventually um, bubbling over where David couldn't control himself. And like the parable says, he could have taken uh, a lamb from his own flock. He could have um, taken one of his wives to satisfy this traveler 
um, this, this, this temptation, but he didn't. He took for himself another man's lamb, another man's wife, um, that David had grown complacent. He had grown distant from God. Uh, Psalm 32, David uh, references what this distance from God looked like. In Psalm 32, verses 3 through 4, he says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. That this man who had once um, known God, who, who had um, written psalms like, The Lord is my shepherd, who, who had walked closely with God, was now distant, refusing to confess, refusing to repent, and his spiritual strength is dried up. That this life-giving rain from heaven, if you will, um, was being held back um, by this lack of confession. My strength dried up as the heat of the summer. Um, he'd been driven by sin, forsaken God, and when he confesses, when Nathan confronts him, there is this forgiveness and there's life and there's like this breath. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said, the Lord has also put away your sin and you shall not die. Imagine David's relief. <gasps> thank you. Thank you. Thank you that I've been forgiven. But David isn't exempt from the consequences of his sin. Um, and so real quick, let's see how and where they play out. So, so Nathan, on behalf of the Lord, says, the sword shall never depart from your house. And so we see David had six sons. Um, we don't hear a ton of about the other ones, so there is some thought that maybe they died early on. Um, but you see the death of Amnon in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 28 uh, through, and 29. Um, you see the death of Absalom um, in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 18, verses 14 and 15, where he is killed by Joab. Um, you see the death of Adoniah in 1 Kings uh, uh, chapter 2, verses 22 and 20, or chapter, verses 20 25, where he's killed by Solomon and his men, um, where the sword shall never depart from your house, where violence, you killed Uriah violently. Violence is going to plague your home, and each one of his sons are murdered. They don't die of old age. They are murdered. Um, God told David, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Um, one of David's sons, Amnon, uh, raped his half-sister Tamar in 2 Samuel chapter 13. Um, Absalom murdered Amnon for the rape of his sister in 2 Samuel chapter 13. Um, Absalom rebels against David in 2 Samuel chapter 15. You've got rape, you've got murder, you've got rebellion coming from David's own home. That there's consequences to this sin. I will take your wives and give them to your neighbor. This one, um, in 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 21 and 22, um, Absalom, under, under the counsel of Ahithophel, which if you remember last, last week, Ahithophel is uh, Bathsheba's grandfather, who was a counselor of David, but now switched loyalties to counsel Absalom. Part of me is like, is this because of what David had done where Ahithophel was like, hey, I thought David was a man after God's own heart. How could he do such an evil thing? And he switches his loyalties. Um, but under the counsel of Ahithophel, Absalom takes control of the throne. David flees Jerusalem. Um, Absalom is, is kind of the interim king. And he sets up a tent on top of the king's palace where everyone can see any David had left behind some of his concubines to oversee the throne and make sure the palace was taken care of. And Absalom sets up a tent on top of the king's palace where all the nation can see and has the concubines come into the tent as he has relationships with him. 
God said, what you did in secret, this is a consequence. I'm going to take your wives and give them to your neighbor. And what you did in secret, I'm going to do in front of Israel, in front of everyone. And then you've got the death of his child. In 2 Samuel chapter 12. Consequences. Consequences. Now, 1 John 1, 9 tells us if we confess our sin, that God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's absolutely true, right? Our sins are forgiven. We're made right with God, but there may be consequences that we've got to deal with here on earth. Man, I was an alcoholic. I abused my wife. I cheated on her, but praise God, he's delivered me and forgiven me. Absolutely. You're restored. You're forgiven. But that doesn't mean that things are going to go back to the way they were. You may be single and alone, and your kids may want nothing to do with you. Right? David's a prime example of this. When God forgives us and restores us, a lot of times he uses this rod of discipline and correction, and our lives are changed. That, that a forgiven man may still have to reap what he's sown. Um, and you see David paying the price for what he did that was displeasing to the Lord. Um, and so you've got this, this confrontation with Nathan, this, this, um, this bringing up of his sin. You've got the consequences of his sin. You know, and oftentimes when, when we sin, our first, when conviction hits, our first response is to run away from God. I don't know about you, but there's times where it's like, I've sinned, I've messed up, and my, my thought is to want to hide from God. You see Adam do this in the Garden of Eden, right? Where he sins and he's, he's trying to hide from God. Good luck with that. Um, we see David distance himself from God for a while. And, but, but David's called a man after God's own heart. Um, you see that in 1 Samuel 13, where, where God is talking to, to Saul. He's like, no, I'm, I'm going to, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And, and Acts chapter 13, again, it's, it's referred to um, uh, David being a man after God's own hearts. Um, I found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all of my will. How can David be called a man after God's own heart? He just, he just killed a guy. He just, he, just, he just took another man's wife, right? What in the, how, is this, how is this happening? You guys ever wondered that? We, we, we call him, yeah, David, a man after God's own heart. And you look at what in the world? David was a man after God's own heart, but he wasn't God. Um, he's not perfect, that he's still susceptible and capable of sin. And while the first thought may be to run and hide from God, um, the second thought is to, to run to God for forgiveness and restoration. And so when, excuse me, when confronted with what he had done, um, David didn't express guilt because he had been caught, right? He wasn't like, you caught me. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. Um, he expressed remorse and contrition because he had sinned against the holy God. This, this was what he understood to be the difference. Um, and we don't have time to get into all of it, but Psalm 51 recounts David's inner thoughts, his prayers about this sin and about where his heart is and what his desire is. And so we're going to look at this and break it down in, in a few sections. And, and I'm just going to encourage you guys to go through and read Psalm 51. Um, and pray over it, and realize that this isn't specific to David, but this is all of us, no matter how great or small our sin is, but this is, this is us. 
So David starts out Psalm 51. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Right out of the gate, what is David asking for? Mercy. Why? Because he cannot appeal to God's justice. If he said, be just, exact justice on me, O God, what is David deserving of? Death. Exactly. You can't appeal to justice here in this situation, David. Why? Because if you, you don't want justice. So it's saying, have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me, O God. David's guilty. Bring it home. We're guilty. We deserve justice. David makes an appeal for mercy. Would, would God be wrong if he were to give David eternal punishment? No, absolutely not. Would God be wrong if he gave any of us eternal punishment? No, none of us are worthy of forgiveness. Sorry, I hate to break it to you. I hate to, to tell you guys, but none of us, even on our best day, none of us are worthy of it at all. We've all fallen short of God's standard. We've, we all like sheep have gone astray. So what's our only hope? It's Jesus, it's mercy. God, have mercy on me. Remove my sins. Be merciful, oh God. Why? Because I'm deserving of death. I'm deserving of punishments. And God, God is going to give punishment, and he's given it in one way and going to give it in another way. That, that mercy or, or that justice is either satisfied on the cross of Christ or it's satisfied in hell. And so what do we say? We say, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, oh God. David continues to write in Psalm 51. I'm going to put some emphasis on some words here. Um, He says, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned. And, and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Okay, I put emphasis on these words. Let me ask you a question. Who's at fault here? David. He doesn't blame Bathsheba, does he? He didn't say, well, if she wouldn't have been naked on that roof, I wouldn't have gone through with that. He said, yeah, I messed up, but, but come on, God, you made her really beautiful, right? She's a 10. If you would have made her a three, I probably wouldn't have gone through with this. Like, he doesn't say that. Adam does when confronted with his sin. God says, what have you done? The woman you gave me, it's your fault and it's the woman's fault. (laughs) David's a man after God's own heart. Why? Because he knows no one else is to blame but himself. He's not throwing anyone else under the bus. This is my sin. This is my iniquity. This is my transgression. I have sinned. Truly remorseful heart, repentant heart takes, takes, takes the blame. And understands that, that we have to appeal to God for mercy. David goes on to write, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. David starts from the get-go. He's not saying I was an illegitimate child. That's not what he's saying, but he's saying I've, I've always been sinful. Right, that's who I am. It's true for us too. We're all sin. We're all sinful. We've all missed the mark. And he goes on to say something. He understands that God alone has the power to forgive. 
that he can't pick himself up from his bootstraps and fix the situation on his own. So he says something. He says, purge me with hyssop. What is hyssop? It's a plant. It's a tree, right? But it had significance in the Old Testament. Um, it was used in purif- purification ceremonies in the Old Testament. But um, one thing that I thought was really interesting is that it was, this was the branch that was used to dip into the lamb's blood and spread over the doorpost to pass over when they're leaving Egypt. But what David is saying here, he says, purge me with hyssop. What he's alluding to here is do an inner work in me. Purify me. Cleanse me. Right? That I, I can't do it on my own. Cleanse me to my core. That if you clean me, I'll be clean. Wash me whiter or wash me and I will be whiter than snow. God, that I am broken. I am dirty. I can't do anything here. And I need you to forgive me. God, you alone can give mercy and you can give justice. Please give me mercy. I've done the sinning here. I've messed up and only you can cleanse me. Only you can purify me. And he goes on, and this is where we're going to have to stop just for time's sake. But he says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And this is David's prayer right here. He's talking to God, this is where I am. I need you to give me mercy. I need you to forgive me. I need you to purify me. I've done the sinning, and this is his prayer, his plea. And as you're looking at this psalm, it's easy to think he's just like self-degrading and beating himself up, right? That he's just trying to become Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. I'm a sinner. I've messed up. This is who I am. But we get to this point, and he says, let me hear joy and gladness, right? Let your joy be my strength. Let this joy that I once experienced return to me. Let me find my first love. Let me experience the joy that I had when the ark was brought back into Jerusalem where I danced. Right? I I don't want to be just some miserable wretch, but I want your joy. I, I want that excitement, that joy that is found in your salvation. That's what I want to hear. And he says, hide your face from my sins, and he's, he's doing this, this play on words because throughout the book of Psalms, you, you read the psalmist say something like, do not hide your face from me, O Lord. Meaning, don't, don't turn your favor away from me. Uh, in, in Numbers chapter 6, the Lord pronounces this blessing over Aaron and his, his sons. And it says, it says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you peace. That the Lord is looking upon you and being gracious to you. That his countenance, his eyes, his sight, his face is pointed to you and giving you peace. And so it's the idea when the Lord looks upon you, that there is this idea of having favor. And so the Psalms say, hey, don't turn your face from me. But David is playing on that. And he says, hide your face from my sin. Normally, I, I want you to look at me. I want you to, to see me, and I want to be favorable in your eyes. But in this instance, hide your face from my sin and blot out what I've done. Forget what I've done. Remove it from my life. And this is where we wrap up. David says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Purify my inner self. This is my prayer. Purify my inner self. And he says, renew in me a right spirit. And the language reads something like this, renew a firm and stable spirit within me. One that is solid. 
He's saying, God, renew in me a clean heart that don't just stop me at adultery, but stop me before that thought of lust even creeps into my mind. How is David a man after God's own heart? Because deep down, far below these sinful desires that he has, he longs to do God's will and he's grieved and broken, broken when confronted with a sin. He's a man after God's own heart because later on in Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 12, when he, gets, when he gets word that his son is going to be killed, when his son is going to die, he fasts and he prays and he goes before God and what happens? His son still dies. What does David do after that? He gets up and worships. You want to talk about being someone after a man after God's own heart, a person after God's own hearts. We get upset when things don't go our way. Right? Ah, I'm done with you, God. How could you do that? David is going before God, begging him that his son doesn't die. And his son still dies. And he gets up and worships. These are the markings of someone who's a man or a person after God's own heart, right? That he sinned greatly, but what he repented greatly as well. You know, and that's what we should do. If we claim to really love God, that should be our response as well. Second Corinthians chapter seven, verse 10 says, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation. Godly grief produces what kind of repentance? Read Psalm 51, that kind of repentance. Not, a, oh, I'm sorry I got caught. Oh, I don't just, I, I don't want to deal with the consequences of my sin. Oh, I want to serve Jesus so I get out of hell. But no, a, a, a realization of what we've done, a realization that we, me, have sinned against a holy and perfect God. And out of that sin, I'm broken. And I go before God just begging for mercy. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this evening. God, thanking you for your word. God, thanking you for this look at David's life that, that points us to what it means to follow you, to chase after you. God, not when things are just good, God, but when sin enters our life, there is a realization, God, and a desire to run after you and run back to you for forgiveness and for safety and restoration. God, I pray that we would take a lesson out of this. God, that no matter how great or small our sin is, God, that we pray a prayer like Psalm 51. God, and come running back to you as fast as we can. God, I pray that your word changes us, that it convicts us, and it moves us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope that you enjoyed this message. If you have any questions or want to reach out to us, you can email us at info at foundationschurch.tv or visit our website at foundationschurch.tv.